Welcome to the Artistic Finance Podcast, where we break down the wall between art and money. If you're here looking for how to be an artist and financially sustain a career, you're in the right place. Keep listening and join us as we learn about artists and how they make money work for them. Hello, everyone. This is your host, Ethan Steimel, here for episode 11. Thank you for being here. You've heard this request many times, but let me ask it again. If you have a minute, please leave a rating and review on your podcast app as we strive to expand our audience. Today's guest is dancer Nina Goldman. She has performed at Lincoln Center, the Kennedy Center, and the National Ballet of Canada. She originated the role of Mrs. Samsa in Arthur Pita's The Metamorphosis at the Royal Opera House in London. On Broadway, she has performed in five shows, including Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, The Phantom of the Opera, and Contact, which won four Tony Awards, including Best Musical. On television, she has appeared in the Fame TV series, the Academy Awards, and Tony Award telecasts. Nina danced on and off for 10 years with Matthew Bourne's company in London, most notably in his Swan Lake, which won three Tony Awards. Recently, she has begun teaching dance for Hunter College in New York City. Without further ado, let's get to our interview. Welcome, Nina Goldman, to the podcast. Thank you. Nice to be here. Um, and just so everybody knows, we're recording this May 14th, 2020, which is amidst the COVID-19 lockdown shutdown. And it's a Thursday so. because I'm losing sight of the days. So, <laughs> Right, exactly. There's a there's an artistic director at um, over at Pace University for the Actors Studio Drama School, and she says it's either day or it's night. Like days of the week don't really matter anymore. I know, right? I have to keep on telling myself, okay, it's Thursday. Right. Right. Exactly. Okay. And and my, my wife has, she works remotely for a real estate company. So the only reason I know the weekends are here is when she's like, oh, I don't have to work for two days. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like, if, if that wasn't the case, I don't know how I would I know. know. Whatever it takes. <laughs> Can you give us a two minute recap of your life and career and how you got to where you are now? So um, I feel like this is an important point. I am a born and bred New Yorker, Manhattan, 95th Street. I come from a family. I have um, there's three girls, and my mother was a dancer. She didn't really have much of a career because she had three young children. I shouldn't say she, had, she didn't have much of a performing career. And um, uh, started teaching in our living room on 95th Street. And I could, could go into that a little bit more into depth later. Um, but we, uh, we just all took down, we all took ballet, she taught ballet. And so we just all took ballet with her. I continued on that track of, of dance, even though I sort of was more interested in musical theater. Um, she was like, no, you have to take ballet because it's the base of all dance. If you want to be good dancer, you have to take ballet. And so I just kept with it. And then, uh, for some very strange reason, I, I, without having any sort of a big, um, dream or goal of being a ballet dancer I kept at it and I I was able to go to some you know fantastic training in New York City and went to a ballet company a major classical ballet company in Toronto the National Ballet of Canada I was there for six years don't know why but I was there and then when I left the company I segued into more uh, commercial work and um, theater and I've had sort of this 
like incredible, if I look back on it, this sort of breadth of, of performing experience from classical ballet to commercial work to Broadway to off-Broadway to dance theater. I had a lot of work in, in England as a, as a dancer and performer uh, and a really mediocre singer <laughs> and um, an actress. And, and so um, uh, uh, so I, I call him... So, so I, you know, it's very easy to say, well, I'm this and I'm that and I'm this and that, but it's, it's, it's hard to, I don't like to peg myself, but I had a very, very full um, performing career, which actually for a dancer, I continued through my, my 40s were sort of like the, in some ways, highlight of my dancing career, which is quite unusual. Wow. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm 50, ah, 55 now, um, <laughs> but I'm still kind of, I'm still performing. I mean, they're very specific things. Um, but, um, they are presenting themselves to me and I'm sort of doing, if I can, I make it work. But then I segued into to teaching. Um, you know, they say as a dancer, you become a choreographer or a teacher. And I was just like, nah, I'm going to do something else. But somehow the teaching kind of like, stuck and I ended up getting a master's in dance education which in New York City um it was geared for K through 12 midway through once I started to do field work and started observing the elementary school setting and dance classes I was like oh my god this is so not for me (laughs) I will not be able to like I am not a good classroom management person for young people like it is a whole other you have to have a gift that I do not have (laughs) <laughs> so midway through, I was like, oh my God, what am I going to do? I have this, I'm going through my degree. I can't go back. I would have, you know, so I ended up fulfilling the degree, but then I fell into this teaching, um, at Hunter college, which is actually where I got my master's in the Arnhold, um, dance education master's program. The teaching just really, um, like I said, it stuck for me. And that's part of my, that's what I am. I say I'm a dance teacher. I'm a ballet teacher. Um, and I'm teaching now, I think, uh, because I had this sort of very varied career in different forms of dance and performance, I gravitate towards teaching populations that are varied as well. Musical theater students, city university students, which is incredibly diverse in age and background and abilities, and professional dancers and contemporary dancers. So anyway, so that's where brings me to the present, which is what I'm doing now, which is, which is the teaching. Okay. I, I'm just going to backtrack to a little bit. You said you went from ballet and then you got into commercial and theater sort of stuff. W- was that like, were they paying more or you just switched for no real reason? I started while I was in high school working. I did the fame TV pilot. I did commercial work. I did some various performing things. So I had that early experiences of doing commercial work, which just pays better. And then I went into the ballet, uh, the ballet world up in Canada, which um, pays differently because you have a consistent weekly salary. So you don't get paid lump sums and then you don't work for a while, you get paid. So it's a different, it's a different, uh, just a different way of how your money is distributed. However, I will say that the commercial work ultimately will pay more. So I was very lucky that while I was doing my ballet work, I was also doing commercial work in in Canada. So I was able to get a little bit of both. When I moved back to New York without a job, I I was doing freelance work as a dancer, but I was sort of going back into the commercial work, which did pay better. 
Um, I went out to LA and I did some, I did the Academy Awards telecast with Debbie Allen and I did some films and whatnot. Um, but LA was not the right mentality for me. So I moved back to New York and then I got into my first Broadway show, which was Phantom of the Opera. And that was a very different pay scale than a classical ballet company or any of the contemporary sort of concert world dance companies. It's a steady salary. It's, which is great, but it's a much higher level than the, than the ballet world or the dance companies. So as you get more money. So now now I think an ensemble member gets almost $2,000 a week. Yeah, no, I think that's right because you have to join Actor Equity, right? Yes. Because you weren't in that before Phantom, were you? No, I wasn't. But I was able to join because I was a SAG member and I was an AGMA member. So because I was already a member of two unions... I was able to join Equity. Uh, Screen, Screen Actors Guild, SAG. What's the What was the other one? Uh, American Guild for Musical Artists. That's the opera and dance company union. And I was a member of that because I danced with um, Elliot Feld's dance company at the time. I think he the title of the company was Feld Ballet New York. I was there for a very short time, but it was an AGMA contract. So I was definitely an AGMA member. So I was a member of those two unions and... You can join by paying if you're a member of two other unions. That's what that's where it was back in the 1930s when I started. But <laughs> yeah, okay. And also, I'm going to touch on that $2,000 a week for Broadway actors or ensemble members because if anybody wants to know, there's like rate sheets out in the world that you can look up online. In my world, people always say, "Okay, USA 29 has rate sheets out there for how much people are going to get paid." Those are minimum, so you can get paid more than that. I'm wondering, as an ensemble member, is it basically like the minimum is what everybody gets paid, or are there certain ensemble members that can somehow like negotiate a little bit higher of a rate? I never worked under a contract that was that much money, but yes, there's a, there's a flat rate that you'll get. Every ensemble member will get. You can get additions to that if you say do something that's considered dangerous. You can also get a little bit more if you're an understudy. You can negotiate if you feel like you um, your years of experience warrants you to get more than the 18 year old that just got the job which I firmly believe in and it's something that I have used in the past that I feel like I it felt very <clears throat> didn't feel right that I was getting the same salary that someone right out of a college program got but that's that's a, that, that again that's that is um, something, it's not a given. It's something you have to fight for. But there are ways that you would get a little bit more if, if you had those little extra perks. When I worked on Contact, Contact was at Lincoln Center, and we started that in 19, I think we had the work, first workshop at Lincoln Center was like $350 a week. It was a favored nation. So favored nations is when everybody, principal, ensemble, everyone's getting the same salary. So I think we had like $350 a week for, for the workshop. And then we went to the Mitzi Newhouse, which is an off-Broadway theater, and we we're all the same, like $750 a week or something like that. And then we were like the surprise hit. They were going to move us up to the Beaumont, which is a Broadway house eligible for the Tony Awards. They doubled everyone's salary. They wanted to keep us. They doubled everyone's salary. It still favored nations. And then at some point... The favored nations stopped, and then the varying salaries went different directions. I, you know, but still, fifteen hundred dollars at that time was like, wow, this is. I mean, this is like 
this is uh, early 2000, maybe before 1999. I mean, that was like, yeah, we've, 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 yeah this is, that was awesome. And it was an understudy for Karen Ziemba, so I had a little bump up from that. And every time I went on for her, I got twice my salary. Amazing. So I got another bump up. <laughs> You're, so that was a good job. That was that was a good job. You're almost making me regret my career choice and think I should have been a dancer, you know? <laughs> <laughs> also, going way back to just to, to point out your New Yorker where you said that's important. I think it is important because I think you're the first New York born and bred. I know. It's crazy, right? And my mom still lives in the uh, apartment building where I grew up. Oh, also, yeah, 90, 95th Street in Manhattan, right? So it's not even like an outer borough. It's like the heart of it. No, and I'm telling you, she's like, like she's like, aren't you going to come and visit? I'm like, Mom, I have to take the bus. I have to walk. You know, it's like, <laughs> what? <laughs> That's no excuse. Yeah, yeah, because you're down on like 14th Street. So like in, anybody else would be like, you don't want to go from 14th Street to 95th Street? Like, are you joking? <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's it's actually worse than that because I'm... I'm you're on like 58. No, I'm on 71st at, <laughs> at the West Side. I'm just across the park. But I'm, so, you know, I'm down here self-isolating. What is that? What are we calling it? Self. I say quarantine, uh, but it's the wrong word. Yeah. Quarantine. It is the wrong word. It's like... Sheltering in place. That's also the wrong... Sheltering. That's is what that, it is. Yeah. Sheltering in place down in the West Village. I've lived in, I lived in Toronto. I lived in LA. I lived in Paris and London. Uh, but, um, you know, back in New York. Love-hate relationship with the city. So now let's learn a little bit about your creative, artistic personality. What is your favorite live event to experience as an audience member? I, I you know, I, of course, I think of the most immediate, you know, what, what has happened more recently. But I think in generally, oddly enough, I'm not, I don't go see a lot of dance. I've lived it so much my life that it has to be a pretty spectacular performance for me to go see something really different. So I don't go see a lot of dance. What seems to what seems to move me more are plays. I can sort of escape more. I, li- I live dance, I teach dance, but I don't really want to go see it anymore. Like it's just it's just like it's too much, right? So um, but I will say I get very emotional and moved by walking into large spaces. So for instance, going to the armory and seeing something at the armory, whether it's good or bad, I have like this visceral emotional experience being in like this vastness of space. And, and, um, and it's different than being in a theater where it's a little bit more confined. Okay. That's the stage. That's the audience. You know what I mean? Again, the same thing, like going to Dia Beacon and walking into um, some of those rooms that are so massive and there could be just like few art objects but there's something about like being in that huge space and there's silence or maybe there's a specific sound that's part of a, an art installation I find those really satisfying experiences yeah I love that I find walking into the oculus I didn't realize it was going to be that big of a space inside you know because it goes down like four or five floors so it's not just what you see up top but i think also it's about walking into those spaces and not having too much stimulation like walking to a more of a stark place it's like it's like also those uh going back to dia beacon the richard sarah the rooms were his sculptures so if i was to make a list i guess it's large space but confined in a way like their parameters to the space 
a few times I've walked up from the West Village to my apartment to water my plants. And so I've walked through Times Square. And that is really interesting. I mean, it's, it's tragic, but there's also something like it's alive. No, no. I, and, and like you used to be able to experience it like three in the morning where it would be deserted. But that's different than 5 p.m. at night. Yeah. Things are screaming at you because of the, the billboards and the neon and the constant changing images. And yet it's completely silent. So you're having like these two opposing kind of energies and forces coming at you. And there's something like it's very it's a, it's quite an experience. So, yeah. And speaking of art installations, there's that sound. Um, it's like whoa. there's like an art installation underneath one of the grates somewhere in Times Square. And I love experiencing that because if you don't know and you just go, you think that's like a subway noise or something. Uh But it's like, no, an artist put that there and it's been there for years. So it's also art. Like there's also art there that even when it's crowded, you could still hear that noise if you're close enough. Yeah. Uh, What is a piece of art that you love? Yeah, it's hard for me to pinpoint. Like I could say to you, oh, I, I just I listened to this piece of this classical music like this okay the score Prokofiev score of Romeo and Juliet I'm like oh my god I love it and I just like it you know I listen to it and then I'm like okay this one's then I go on to the next thing yeah um when you need to draw inspiration for something for a dance where do you pull it from as a teacher I'm very uh I'm, I'm interested in how the body functions in a more pedestrian way so that I can help to articulate a very codified dance form such as ballet to population of students that might find ballet um, elitist or traditional or something that's not them. So I'm constantly gravitating towards practices or people that are just dealing with movement and very sort of, um, or references or athletic references or whatever it is, just to try and formulate a language um, that can help to make this form a little bit more accessible. So I think that's probably what I look for. um, Nice. Um, What kind of music do you listen to? uh, It's all over the map. It depends. So much depends on mood. Like I, I have my singer songwriter, you know, um, Regina Spector, uh, Fiona Apple. I have my folky iron and wine kind of days. I have my totally Louis Armstrong. Yeah. So I, I, it depends on my moods and then I'll have those times where I'll be like, okay, classical music. I need a little chill time and I need to kind of, uh, not be, um, inundated with words yeah all right well uh if you have time uh what are some of your hobbies and this is the part that's going to be so embarrassing is that i don't have any hobbies (laughs) yeah yeah I, i think it's important to have a hobby especially because i feel like i need to make a career transition and i don't have any other strengths like i can't say oh well now i could knit scarves for people and make a living. I don't know. So anyway, so I, I feel like I feel like that's an area that I need to improve in my life is to get a hobby. Okay. Well, I'm sorry for asking the question now. <laughs> okay. So that's your creative personality. Now, 
uh, about your financial personality. Um, Can you describe your demographics? So I'm 55 and I'm white and I was raised uh, in New York City in a rent stabilized apartment on Park Avenue, a classic six. My parents did not own and still do not own the apartment. I went to our first school. The three of us went to a French private school on um, 72nd Street called the Lycée Français de New York. And um, I was there from nursery through third grade or kindergarten through third grade. And then at that point, the three of us were taken out of the school and we all went, well, I went to public school. So I went to public school from fourth grade through junior high school. And then I was working. I was performing a little bit as a young teenager. Uh, I went to a private school called the Professional Children's School, which I'm sure the tuition fees now are 10 times as high as they were when I was in school. But I went there for my four years. I was also in a, um, in any case, because I was working, I actually contributed later on uh, to my my years in high school. I did help pay for my tuition because I was, I was able to. So, um, but I, uh, when it comes to my dance training, I went to some very prestigious schools. I started school of American ballet. Um, and then I moved over to the American ballet theater school, but I was also on a scholarship. So I was able to fund most of my training, my dance training, which can be very, very expensive now for, um, for young people. Um, a lot of it, I had either a scholarship or I had a partial scholarship. That was very helpful. Nowadays, I'm just going to go a little sidebar again. Nowadays, students, so many students are doing private lessons in, in dance, and we didn't do any of that. Like, that was just not, I, you know, I had private singing vocal, and that was something I paid for. But So, so, so is it like they're going to, to ballet school or dance school, and then they're doing private dance lessons on the side as well? Yes, yes. And... Some of them are doing it because of this competition world. So a lot of dance dancers do this competition thing and they have to have their solos. Um, you know, they have to get work on solos. So they have privates for that. And it's, it's just, to me, it's probably so much more expensive to be, <clears throat> to be training now uh, than it was during my day. However, there still are a lot of places that offer scholarships. Yeah. After high school, I immediately got into a professional ballet company. But if you're going to be in a ballet company, it's like 17 years old is really the age, 17, 18. So after high school, I went right up to Canada, was in the ballet company. I ended up, when I was 30, when I was in doing contact, I decided to go back for my BA. And I had no idea what I wanted to do. I just knew that I needed to sort of develop that side of my brain a little bit more. So I started part-time paying for courses like at Hunter, uh, Fordham, I did a course. And so I just was picking up credits all, all over the place. And then I ended up finishing up, took me eight years, my bachelor's degree at Empire State College, which is um, their main campus is in Saratoga Springs, but they have a, an off-campus in on Varick Street. And a lot of it, it's really for adult learning because you create your own independence. A lot of it is independent study. You create your own degree. 
I was able, I applied for a scholarship and I was able to get a scholarship. So I was able to finish up my bachelor's through Empire State College, which I just, I had an incredible experience because I had an amazing mentor. I was able to pay for most of my BA through that. So I didn't, I didn't have any debt from my BA. And then when I went back to get my master's in 2012, again, I, I knew I wanted to go back to school, but I was like, what can I justify spending money on? for a graduate program when I just really don't know what it is. And I, I explored all these ideas and then I was just like, I can't, I just don't know. And so I, all I knew is that, and I explored NYU and I explored other programs. I was like, I can't spend $80,000 for something that I'm just really not sure this is what I want, an MFA or MA or... So again, I was really lucky. I got this scholarship to do this program I didn't. I left with no debt because I, I got this scholarship. So I I was really lucky that I have no debt educate debt for my education, and I have an MA. So you had a whole career as a dancer performer, and then in 2012 you went and you got your MA. So you were. So I continued working through the whole thing. So that's why. So I. So my BA. I took. That's why it took me eight years because I was working the whole time. And then the same thing with my MA, I was still working, I, not as much. I was doing um, some things in London, some production, like the Metamorphosis I did in 2013, 11, 13. So I, I, I was able to work it, work it so that I could do, again, both at the same time. And then I started segueing into the teaching. So I started teaching in Hunter while I was still finishing up my master's there. Yeah. Okay. Um are you bad with money, like a stereotypical artist, or are you a money wizard? I'm not either. Uh, my father was a financial advisor. Oh, you uh, should, should you should be a wizard. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not. I let him take care of everything. So he, so he, unfortunately, he passed away in 2011. So um, he's no longer with us. But when I was growing up, he always stressed putting money aside. And so I, he set up, I have IRA, like I have, I have accounts that I, I just let him deal with it while I have this complete, um, uh, regard and respect and understand, uh, I shouldn't say understanding, but, um, appreciation for putting the money aside for when you might need it. Um, I let, let him do it. And so I, I didn't really educate myself enough about what it is I'm actually doing. So that said, I do have money put aside. I don't, and I have it in different. I have different portfolios. I have different different IRAs. I have a certificate of deposit. I have. They're all. It's all over the map. But um, I do have stuff. Uh, but if you want to ask me specifically, then it's going to get harder, trickier. Yeah. Okay. Okay. My thinking is even if you don't know what you're doing, as long as you take action, that's good. And, and, and especially when you're starting, you don't have enough money to mess up. So it's like, even if you make every single wrong decision, it's going to be fine. Like, like if you invested in a company that goes kaput, that would be bad. But guess what? If you're starting out, you don't have enough money to put into a company that's going to go kaput. So it's not even an option for you. Um, so even if you set aside money, like, like what you and also Peter said, and some other people have said, is setting aside money is the important part. So even if you just put it in a checking account that makes zero interest, financial advisors would tell you that's a terrible idea. But even if you did that, you would still have money if you keep putting money in little by little. Like you would still have something. So even though that would be like not good financial sense to just set money in a checking account, it would still be a great financial choice for your life 
long term. Yes, my my I'm reminded of my mother who uh, was putting money away for her for a trip to Israel, and I remember she would five dollars a week in a little envelope. And then one day I found this envelope. I'm like, there's all this money here. She's like, don't touch that. That's the right trip to Israel. I'm like, okay, okay. But um, but I I agree. I think you can you can put away five dollars a week. Everyone, I think pretty much. I shouldn't I shouldn't I shouldn't generalize it, but but unfortunately I'm not doing that now. What I seem to be doing is every year I go get my taxes done and my accountant says, this is the contribution you should make to your IRA, your traditional IRA. And so I do a lump sum into my traditional IRA. So in some ways I do it, but I should be doing it. It would probably feel less dramatic if I did it in smaller increments than if I did one lump sum. Then I'm like, ah. And once again, what I like to say and, and why I sort of want this podcast out there is I just want people to talk about it. Because if you just talk about it and think about it, you don't have to think about it every day. But if just a little bit, like you only have to think and concentrate on it just a tiny bit, and that that will be enough to like at least get you in a better place than you would be otherwise. So yeah, and oh, and then also once again, there's no wrong answers. So like as long as you're doing something, good. So lump sum versus every month. I I think every month because like you're saying, it's less dramatic. It's easier to let go. It's automated, better for me. But lump sum at tax time also a fantastic way to do it. But as long as you do it, like if you didn't do either one of those things, then it would not be so good. But as long as you are doing something, great. <laughs> because nobody, especially in the arts, we're our, we're our own businesses, we're our own people. Nobody else is looking out for us. Um, if you're lucky, you get an uncle or an aunt or a grandma or a grandpa or something that helps you, or your father is a financial advisor and sort of helps you. But no one's going to do it for you. Yeah, no, I mean, I... I... I feel very lucky that I had this sort of instilled in me at a young age, but I also did not get involved into really understanding what are the logistics, like what are the logistics of actually what is happening? Like I, I, I know it's there and I put the money there, but how I'm not actively involved in really managing it. Maybe that should be my new hobby. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm going to I'm, see. Here's the thing. I actually think it's better to be less involved because the reality is finance is boring. Compound interest is boring. Retirement accounts are boring. The more boring they are, the more stable and better they are. And if you're trying to actively manage or actively, it's like, no, no, no. People have whole careers about managing your money. Like, just let them do it because the slow and steady, boring way is the best way trying to figure it out and thinking you're smarter than other people. It's like, no, you're an artist. You go make art. You do your art thing and let other people trust other people to deal with your money. So I, I think, I don't think, I think you've, you've done a great way. I think it's a great way. And I would say, don't become a financial advisor unless you want to go get a degree or something. But I would say, don't go that route. Uh, no, because my brain shuts off when I think certain than the numbers, it just, it just, they just shuts off. I mean, I did not do well in math in school and maybe I'm just, you know, giving myself a, an out here, but, uh, it just, it doesn't, my brain doesn't compute it. And it just kind of, I get, I get fidgety. Yeah. Um, okay. Are you a saver or a spender? I have like some funny quirks when it comes to this. Um, I am a saver in the sense that I, if I like to keep my numbers at the same level. So if I have a big purchase and I'm not a big spender. Like I'm not. I don't have high tech stuff. I don't have. I, I'm. I'm. 
I have my weak spots and that's probably like organic food, you know, things like that. Um, you know, where I'd like to spend a little bit more money, but I like to keep my levels at the sort of at the same. So if I spend something then I'm going to take another area of my life that I maybe will not spend as much in to even it out, right? It's a little boring, but, and this is so ridiculous, but this is the example that comes to my head. So I bought an unlimited Metro card. This is when we were riding the subway and I lost it. And I was so angry at myself that there was a hundred bucks. I was like, okay, so now I have to withhold in some other area of my life that hundred bucks. I'm going to have to walk a little bit more. I'm going to have to not get that organic peanut butter or whatever it is. And I had to like, that made me feel better for having minus that $100 in that way. So it's kind of nutty. It's my own little quirk, but it makes me, it keeps me in a, in a, in uh, a yeah, balanced equilibrium. Balance. <laughs> balance is absolutely the right word. Yes. Yeah. So I'm not very, um, again, I don't, I don't, I spend money on certain in certain areas, but then I'm not extravagant in, in other ways. Uh, hair products. I spend way too much money on hair products. <laughs> okay. Um, are you risk averse or a risk taker? I'm not a risk taker in any way. No way. I am a, I mean, definitely it's all about balance, staying me, you know, staying in the middle, boring, boring, boring. Yeah. Okay. Um, and growing up, we know your father was a financial advisor and your mother seemed to be like good at squirreling money away. And they were, I assume they were married until they died or did they divorce or? Yes. Yeah. No, they were married. Okay. So, uh, if you want to talk about this, um. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, my parents were very careful with their money. I don't feel like I ever lacked anything in, in my, uh, life. You know, I never got Barbie's camper and I felt very, very, you know, slighted because of that. But But you live in New York City. You don't have you don't have space for Barbie's camper. <laughs> That's true. And I was the third of three daughters, so anything I got was a hand me down anyway. So it was all sort of tragic. But now there's all this technology that you feel like you have to have. Going to the theater is so expensive. Like when we went to the theater all the time when I was younger. It was like for family outings. Again, we didn't have we didn't have a we didn't have a country home. We did have so my mother when she was um, her my grandmother passed away. She had left a little bit of money, and my parents bought a small house on Fire Island. And so we had that up until I was five years old. And this is probably the most tragic thing ever was that my parents sold that house. Aww. And so we my older sister still has not forgiven my parents for that. Um, <laughs> I mean. That would have probably been a great way to supplement with extra income because you could rent out those houses. But as well, the upkeep of a house on Fire Island is outrageous because, you know, the salt, the damage, the salt and the water and now with all those hurricanes. And so who knows what it would have been if it could have been a, a great investment or if it could have been something that would have been really um, uh, stressful for my parents. We'll go with the stressful part. Yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, I think we've already touched about on this sort of, but what did your finances look like when you began your career? I, right after high school, I moved two weeks later, I moved up to Toronto and I got an apartment with two other people that they needed a roommate. They both worked at National Life Canada. I immediately had a salary, weekly salary. Um, we went on tour, got per diem, 
you know, my rent was nothing. It was like 300 something dollars. It was all manageable. I never felt like I needed to dip into anything. I had a savings account. I have no idea what it was. I'm sure somewhere in a box in my mother's closet, there's my first pass book, you know, like those little books you used to have for your savings account. Yeah, I never, I never felt like I had to dip into anything to take to, to, to pay. So, so then I was there for six years. And in between on my t- days, you know, then I did commercial work. So I had a little extra, you know, when I made the decision to leave a steady job, I had a little bit of a cushion for myself. And um, I was able to take a little bit of time to, I, I mean, I can't take off as a dancer, you can't take off time, really, you just have to keep going. So I would just I would just pick up work, I would just do some performances here and there, I would do, um, I started working with, uh, you know, Feld Ballet, and that didn't work out. So I went out to LA, you know, so I just, you're just constantly auditioning. You're constantly, you can't just stop really. So. Right. So you just started working. And then I also love that there's people all across the United States of America, young performers move to New York and actually, and people across the world move to New York to try to work on Broadway and something. And you are in New York and then you move away immediately. <laughs> I know, I know, right to Toronto. And I was like, I was like, where's Toronto? I was like, what, you know, Manhattan sort of the center of all, but, but it just was like, Oh, okay, sure. Why not? You know, so that was my call. That that would have been instead of me going to college, which would you would do after high school. I moved to Toronto, and I but I was getting I was a job. I was getting paid for it. I think so. it's awesome. I, sometimes I feel like I'm not a real theater person because I haven't been to London to see a show, and I haven't been to Toronto to see a show. Right, and I'm like. Why I need to I need to go visit those meccas and sort of yeah. you know just see something at least say I did it be like oh yeah yeah I've done that yeah 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 well they'll, now they're coming to you so you can watch them in your own home until we can all travel it's, again it's not the same it's not I the know. same I know, I know. <laughs> okay um, I'm I'm gonna skip this question unless you want to answer it has there been an event that affected how you view money like the 2008 financial crisis oh no there's totally been an event oh there um, has yes. Okay. Um, so when my father passed away, he was taking care of all of the finances, the paying the bills for the he, just, he was he was the organized one. My mom was not was was sort of your if I'm to say a typical artist. She just um, she was good at putting money in an envelope in the drawer, and she definitely put money away. But she followed my father, so like he had a long he had paid into for both of them a long term health care policy. And paid into it every month. And thank God, thank God that he did that. Because we're seeing it now. My mom's 88. And uh, um, so my father passed away in 2011. And I was like, oh boy, what do we do? Like we had to sort of kind of get a fast track learning into how to handle my mother's expenses. And, and of course we had some advice from some outside people, but we definitely, my sisters and I um, had to sort of take on, and now I take care of all my mom's bills and stuff like that, which is, can be quite stressful sometimes. But, you know, we found out about Scree, which is for seniors, they cap your rent in New York city. And then finding out a long-term healthcare, which can we, any one of us afford long-term health care? We live in the United States of America. Right, no. exactly. So it's like, so we were, so I was paying, I was, I was organizing all of this quarterly payments of, you know, $1,500 for my mom to continue the long-term health care. I was like, well, we're not going to end it now. So what I real what, what this, this moment was like, oh my God, what's going to happen? So I'm doing this for my mom and she's got this long-term health care policy what do I need to do 
to think about my future as I get older. Like I am not thinking this, I have not been thinking this through. I've been managing my money. I've been very responsible, but I'm not thinking long-term. I know the money's over there somehow. So that was a, that's it. That has been and continues to be a huge uh, wake up call to be like, okay, how do I need to structure so that I am not having to decide between medicine and, you know, food as so many Americans have to de- have to deal right. With. So that long term care policy that's separate from life insurance. Yes, yes. So it's it's for medical. So pay into it, and then you have to go through these. So my mom has a home health care aide three days a week. So you have to go through. Well, and then she also has supplemental health insurance from ARP that we're paying two hundred and something. It's gone up. It's like maybe two eighty now a month. That was another thing that. I had to take on to pay monthly so that anything that Medicare doesn't cover, the supplemental insurance will cover. And that's been also helpful with her physical therapy and medicines and stuff like that. With the long-term health care, we've had to, um, you have to go through a period where you're paying for the aid and not getting reimbursed. And you have like hundred days of that. And then a hundred hours. I mean, it's like, and it takes forever for them finally to cover the, the aid, but now we're at a place now where I'm not paying a premium. We're not putting any more money into it. She is guaranteed a certain amount of hours, days for however long that takes. And it could be at-home care, full-time care, or assisted living. Once that is done, then we have to move into a Medicare, op- Medicare option. But for now, we're set with having the aid at the apartment three days a week. Yeah, it sounds like you're in great shape. We are, but I'm saying, but this, but we are, but this is what has, ta- has taken a village to figure this out. And then it's like, then it's like, okay, so what do I have to do for myself? Right. Well, I, and I was going to ask that. Do you know how long you were, like your father had that set up? Like how, how young were your parents when they started paying that? I, I actually don't know, but I will say that my, that it was my father paid into it probably I want to say 10 years, and then my father died. So he never reaped the benefits from this paying into it for 10 years. My mother is. Also, when my father died, my mother got his Social Security. Her Social Security amount went up because she was a freelance, she was a dance teacher. And then she, then she, then she became, then I, then she became a writer, a dance critic. So she worked for backstage and different publications. So, but still her, um, amount from social security was a lot lower than my dad's. So when he passed away, she got his level of social security. Again, I'm not married. Like, you know, those are all questions I think about. I'm like, okay, so I don't have anything to, re- I don't have anyone to rely on. All what I have to rely on right now are my IRAs, my Roth IRA, my traditional IRA. I have a, an annuity, you know, I have like these little pock, you know, is that going to, is that going to be enough? I don't know. So that was a huge event for me that really made me think, okay, I'm just going to go on with this just for one, one more second. And this is how things sometimes support one another. I got the, the, the master's in dance education from K through 12 was not really the right direction for me. However, I was able to, I got this job teaching at Hunter College. The MA bumped up my salary a little bit just by having this other degree. I've taught at Hunter College now for four years. Because I teach two courses, 
and I've taught for a certain amount of time, I get benefits. So I get health benefits and I've started a pension. So if I can stay there for 10 years, which God help us because CUNY is going to have major cutbacks starting in the fall. If I can keep my load as two courses every semester and keep my, my pension, and that, this is where my head is now thinking. I want to hold on to that pension if I can and really and, and pay into that and whatnot. So yeah, so back to your original question. This was a huge life event that, that changed my whole thinking about my future. Yeah. Um, okay, so in your life, have you had any health challenges? No. That's great. And no major, no major injuries, believe it or not. I don't not believe that, actually. <laughs> yeah, I've been very, very lucky. Okay, do you think about money often, a.k.a. do you worry about it on a daily basis? Um, no, I don't. I don't because um, I work a lot. Like I, I, and I work a lot because I say yes to everything and I'm exhausted. I'm not making as much money as I, you know, was, you know, because the situation, but I'm saying yes to everything right now. And I'm teaching a lot. And so I'm not, so I'm not, I'm not, again, I'm not having to dip into my savings yet. Awesome. Awesome. When you have excess money, where do you put it? I have a high interest savings account. So it's readily available to me. And that was something somebody said you should have an emergency account that's there's fluid that you can take if god forbid something happens i belong to the actors federal credit union which i love and i have a high interest um savings account so i I try and put money into that That, that's a good thing to mention is that credit unions tend to give you a better interest rate um than traditional banks so if if you have access access to one it's not a bad idea to join i didn't know that I love it. Yeah. I love it. The money they have is the money that people put in with them. So credit unions are really community-centered, and they get the power from all the people involved. And somehow, because of that, they can give you a little bit better of an interest. Yeah. No, and you know what? You can always get someone on the phone. Like, that idea of community. Like, I I, I feel like I, I'm talking to people. I value that very much. I feel like in those big banks, forget it. What was a great financial decision you've made? I kept my rent-stabilized apartment. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm going to tell you, I, again, this is something you're going to probably want to cut. And I'm just going to go off into a little tangent for a second. So I've, I got this apartment in 1995. I had moved to Montreal to dance with a company, La Ballet Jazz. I came back in 1995, and I got this rent-stabilized apartment on West 71st Street for $850. I took it sight unseen. I had my sister go over and look at it. Got it. Sight unseen. I held on to it doing the two-year leases, signing up for two-year leases every year. Cut to 2013, I want to say, my landlord sold the building to a new landlord. I was one of two rent-stabilized tenants in a six-unit building. That other rent-stabilized person was evicted, but she was problematic. She wasn't paying her rent. He tried to evict me because I have a cat. I always had the cat, but he tried to he tried to prove that or claim he was claiming that I was harboring an animal. In normal situations, I'm sure a lot of people would be very intimidated by it because it is a very very intimidating, awful situation. Yeah, but you're a New Yorker, so you can I'm deal a New Yorker, with this. And I'm connected, right? <laughs> I know somebody who's a, a real estate lawyer. I fought it. And I went to court three times and he kept on trying. He kept on just trying. It was unbelievable. And you go to the housing court and nobody speaks English and you see these elderly people there. And it is, it is so tragic. 
but I won. My um, landlord had to pay my lawyer's fees. There was a most very emotional time there, though, that I was like, I'm done. I can't handle this. And I was like, I want to live out of the city. I can't. I, it just, it, I, I wasn't, Peter and I weren't dating. I was just like, I was, I, I was done. So I started, I have friends that live up in um, Connecticut, near the uh, New York border. And I was like, I'm looking for a house, right? I don't drive. I don't, I, I, I you know, like, I, it, it didn't, it wasn't logical in any way. I'm looking for houses. They're like, yes, you come up here. And then you had a community up there. They're like, come on up here. It's New Sherman, Connecticut. I found a house. And everybody, and my friends come and they're looking at the house and they're like, oh my God, you could decorate, you could put that there and that there. I was like, I like, I had like this vision, like this romanticized this vision of this house and a garden and whatever. And still don't drive, not near the train station, you know, ridiculous. I put a bid, I put an offer, I put an offer on the house. I don't know what I was thinking. It's like, oh, I'll just, I'll take my money. I like, I have money stashed away somewhere. I'll take it, I'll put it there and then I'll save money by, I don't know how. Then have the inspectors come. And of course, the inspector was like, okay, this is a teardown. <laughs> this house. This is, I knew nothing. I was thinking about the decoration. I'm like, no, the septic tank is great, but everything else is crap. So I took away the bit, the offer and was saved because it was not a logical, it was, it was, it was completely um, an emotional decision that would, I would never have been able to support it. So the fact that I've held on to that rent stabilized apartment is like, it is, it has allowed me to live my life, leaving a Broadway show to do more creative project in Cleveland, Ohio, taking a leave of absence from another Broadway show to do another creative project, like being able to make creative decisions because I haven't had this huge, I haven't had a mortgage I haven't had a huge overhead of repairing a part, you know, a house or if it, I've just had my little rent stabilized apartment. Mind you, it still is a good, it's not that cheap. It's not 850 anymore. It is something that has given me some freedom of living a life, a creative life. How much is it now? You don't have to answer. It's but. 15 something. And it's gone now. I think my lease is up, which I'll sign a two year lease if my landlord's listening. Um, and it will, it will go up again, but you know, Unless he wants to buy me out for over, you know, a lot. He offered me $10,000 during the, during the whole eviction thing. $10,000. It was like $10,000 will only, will not even deal, will not even pay for Moisha's movers. I mean, $10,000, like, are you kidding me? So then I had a lawyer say, well, if he gives you $100,000 after taxes, you're getting $80,000. What can you do with $80,000? You can't do anything for $80,000. How much is it worth to him? Like, can he, I mean, now we know the market's going to be, it's a whole, probably a whole different thing. But for an apartment on West 71st Street, a top floor apartment, studio, which he, maybe he can make into duplex, I don't know. What is it worth to him? Certainly not less than $100,000 for me. Right. Okay, so you're saying $250,000? I don't think it happens anymore. I just don't feel, I think those days of like, oh yeah. Oh, was, it does. It does? It does. Wait, okay. wait, like people buying out to get yeah, you out like of the Yeah, like landlords apartment? buying out their stable Well, $250,000 may be too much for a buyout. So in that sense, yes, it doesn't happen. But I think, uh, yeah, if, if a tenant is a headache or they can do something better if that tenant's out, I think they'll, they'll, they'll buy yeah. you out. Well, in any case, he could start, we could start at two fifty, dollars and then we can discuss it. But I'm certainly not taking 10000 People have mentioned real estate on this podcast, and it is a way to build wealth. And having a rent-stabilized situation can 
be a big difference maker. No, but- and I'll say, and I'll say uh, again that that rent stabilized having a rent stabilized apartment allowed me to affected my choices in my work. I was able to, you know, I left, I was in Phantom of the Opera. I had a full-time contract there. And then I was offered this play in at the, at the Great Lakes Theater Festival in Cleveland for five weeks. But I was a lead in this sort of play with movement. They wouldn't give me a leave of absence. And so I left a full-time Broadway contract to do this play for five weeks. If I had a mortgage or a really expensive rent, would I have been able to do that? Would I have made the same decision? You know, probably no. Exactly. In theater, there becomes this intellectual attitude of like, I'm smarter than you, therefore I'm better. I'm a better designer. I'm a better actor. And, and sometimes people criticize like career decisions that artists make. Money is such an issue that even if it motivates your artistic choices, like that's okay because you you live in the reality of the world. And just because you choose to be an actor in a Broadway show for like seven years and like, you know, oh, well, how artisty can you get after a year? Like, it's like, no, they're paying a mortgage. They're paying their life. They're giving a good existence to their family, their friends. They probably have kids. Yeah. Sending their kids through college. And also having, um, having a family. I mean, I don't have kids. So I don't have to worry about paying their medical bills and paying, getting them through college. So I was able to make decisions that maybe were not the most financially the smartest decisions, but they were, they were to me, they were creative and they were filling and they were, you know, but I didn't have the responsibility of these other things. Um, What is a bad financial decision you've made? Well, I'm not going to put a bid on a house. Okay, I paid for the inspectors and the the housing inspector and then the the septic tank inspector, but that was a bad decision. Like just to go to that house. I mean, I it didn't put me back, but it could have. I mean, it could have been a really and again, it was it, it, like I said, it was a, a, a decision that was based on an emotional reaction. That was not cool. Um. So, but I was saved. Yeah. Yeah. W-2 income versus 1099 income. How much of each do you get? More W-2 because of Hunter College. And then I was, um, I was the, this just, the show just closed, but I was the associate choreographer on Phantom of the Opera, the national tour of Phantom of the Opera. So I, that was a W-2. I'm, I'm making the observation now that I've talked to enough people. I feel like the actors, actors and performers tend to get W-2 income um, versus 1099. Like the designers tend to get 1099 and have to pay their taxes. Because the way I worked out my contract, even though I was associate choreographer, my agent negotiated when I first started the contract that I would take a contract as a sort of a da- under a dance captain or dance associate sort of contract, which would be under equity so that I could get health insurance weeks. So that to me would weighed out a little bit less salary, but then I was able to, it was paid into my equity health insurance. So that's how it was sort of established for me at the beginning, because and that was just through an agent. Yeah. Um, do you file your own taxes? I have an account. I have somebody who does it for me. So I organize it, and then I have an account that I go to, and I'm like, here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, thankfully, I still get 1099s so that I can still write off some of the teaching I'm doing still now are 1099s, but that seems to be that might be a little bit less now. I don't know. Who knows? There's so many unknowns now. Okay, so now I want to break down your retirement plan because it sounds like your dad set up all this complicated stuff that <laughs> so and you're in so many unions so I assume you have some sort of pensions or things to do those no so SAG no I have like nothing I have because I don't really I, I worked on minute like SAG so many years ago and I have very little there I'm not vested in equity 
I have, so I started this pension through Hunter College. I have two separate portfolios. I have one at Schwab. I have one at Ameriprise. And I have... I have one 401k through equity. Okay. So, and your uh, brokerage accounts, are those IRAs? Both. I have a traditional IRA and I have a Roth IRA. And I have a certificate of deposit through a credit union, which is one of those, I'm not even sure why I still have that. Because it probably auto renews and you just keep renewing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I probably should move it into something, but I don't. Yeah, it's just there. And again, I feel like it's more readily available than if I were to touch anything else. Yes, yeah. Because with certificates of deposit, you get a little higher interest rate, which is why you put it in the deposit. You can pull it out readily. The interest that you gained, you have to give back. So, But if you need to, you can pull it out. Um, sort of penalty-free in the sense of, yeah, you have to give up the interest you gained. You know, it's not like the principal right. is less if you right. need to pull it out. So um, so that's what I have. So I have two different portfolios, and I just let them do their thing. I'm not involved. Do you talk to some, an advisor there to do it? Or? Yes, yes. So my when my dad passed away, I moved my stuff over to a f- colleague of his, and then he moved to Schwab letting me know that he was going to be retiring and this is his five-year plan. So he introduced me to someone who I just basically spoke with as the stuff was being moved over to Schwab and I just get my statements. Like I have no relationship with him now. I, I actually don't even have to say it. I don't even remember his name. Um, but, and then at Ameriprise, he's the husband of a colleague of mine who I like very much who I trust um, very much, and he's um, the person that I have a deal with most. Like when I make my yearly deposit after my tax appointment. Your 401k, do you get input into how that's invested, or is it just sort of like however the equity does it? Exactly. I'm not putting, I'm not, you know, it's not even that much. It's probably about $8,000. Like it's not very much. So I'm, I'm also thinking about should I just move it into something else? But then I never, I never do it. So, I mean, I can't. Do you ever still put money into it? Like, do any of your jobs put money into it now? No, because I, that's just it. I'm not working under equity anymore. I'm not performing. That's why I think I should just move it somewhere else because I'm not working. You know, it's not nothing. Yeah, I would recommend move, move, just moving it into your IRA. Not, not because you need to or not because it would make a difference, but just to have it all in one place and not to have an extra account that you don't need. So, But once again, I'm not a financial advisor. I don't, don't listen to me. Yeah. But I mean, take take the 10 minutes to find the form to just transfer it all over. Yeah. Okay. Two questions that are probably combined, maybe, or maybe, maybe, maybe not. How important has your personal support system been? And how much has your professional network been for you? My parents were very supportive and probably and realized that I was going to be an artist, like a dancer and work in the field. And they would probably not imagine me doing anything else. Uh, So there was never any needing to prove myself. And as a matter of fact, I feel like my parents, while education was important, they weren't like, they weren't like, you have to get your degree, you have to do this. It was none of that. I mean, my mom was a dancer, but I think they just, they just knew that I in some way was going to be going in that direction. My older sister did not. She started out dance and she was like, wasn't for her. And she had the freedom to go to school. My middle sister became a ballet dancer as well. So she, she had more of a, a very different career, but that's huge to have the support of your family. I didn't have to prove anything. I didn't have to bat and make any, I didn't have to, 
win any battles of like, I want to do this, you know? So, and then my parents led me in the right direction. I think early on, my mom sent me to, you know, really good teach. I had really good teachers. So yeah, my, my, my family has been, was very, very supportive, always coming to see me perform wherever it was in Europe or whatnot. And then my, my professional, for sure, I have friends that I worked with that are now choreographers and directors, and now they're hiring me in a different capacity. You never know where a road's going to lead you. I said yes very early on to a lot of things and without knowing that it was going to lead me into different places that I am, the places that I am in now. Yeah. How much of your success has been hard work versus luck? I have been very lucky. I have been in the right place in the right time for many situations. I have also worked incredibly hard. I remained open to people, to ideas. I cannot stress enough. One, you have to say yes to everything. You never know how something is going to play out. You don't know. It could be, feel like a terrible situation, but you're going to learn something from it. But you have to be nice to people and you have to be respectful. You are, no one is better than anybody else. And your work ethic and your participation and your engagement and your willingness is huge. And while I'm not a star, I've always worked well in the ensemble. I am a team player and you have, you just have to be a team player. And that, that's not just about the people on the stage. It's everybody in the building in any, in, 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 in any uh, situation, you know, whether it's TV or whether it's stage. And I have been in situations where I was treated badly, and I will never forget those situations. I will never forget being treated less than, and uh, they were very painful. Uh, but it was a learning experience for sure, not how to behave, you know, the way not to behave. Amazing. Great. Nicole's questions from a non-theater person. Why do a majority of theater artists not have any savings or retirement savings? Because we think about the immediate we're just not thinking about long-term and especially for dance. It's like, okay, you might have some goal for your set for yourself, but you have to, you are thinking about immediately developing your technique, working on your skills, working on your body, working on your voice. You know, it's just, it's just all about this immediate focus that you're not thinking about tomorrow. You know what I mean? In the sense of 20 years from now, 30 years from now, 40 years from now, 50 years from now. You just, you don't have the time. You don't have the bandwidth. I mean, I shouldn't say that, that you have the bandwidth, but, but you know, it's just like, it's so all encompassing to be a performer. You're just trying to get into that audition and then you get into the audition and then you're trying to get into the, not be cut from that audition. And then you want the callback. And then, you know, so it's just, it's, it's a lot. And, and that's why I, I want to stress that like setting aside something, especially early on, just get into the habit and just do it. Like you don't need to focus on money all the time. Like you don't need to focus on your retirement savings all the time. You just need to get it set up and get it sort of automated or, or, or get your pattern of how you're going to put it in once a year or something. Just get that set up and always do it. And you don't have to think about it ever and you'll be better off. Like you just have to do it. It's important. And it's, it is, it can be like little things like um, not getting that iced coffee. Three days a week, you make your own coffee and you put that extra $5 in that envelope, in the you know, whatever, or in the bank or whatever it is, you put it aside. Absolutely. And once you get that mindset, it becomes a habit. We have a lot of habits that are good habits and bad habits, but you can create a habit. And once you get into that habit and you start to see the rewards of it, then you're going to continue the habit. You'll start to continue to feed the habit. Yep. 
Um, how will COVID-19 affect the future of dance? I, my classes have moved online. I'm trying to convey and create a physical practice through the computer in spaces that are not meant to be dance spaces. I mean, who has in New York City an, an open space? And, and then you can't jump. You can't travel across the room. So it's hard. And I've had to absolutely reconfigure how I'm teaching my students. And I, it's, it's, it's a challenge. I know, though, as a dancer, you can't stop. You need to keep working. So whatever that means, there's a lot available online. There's a lot of, you know, a lot of wonderful teachers. I do a live Instagram once a week. And you've got to keep doing it every day. And, um, and then who knows what's going to happen tomorrow, but right now you cannot let it go. Okay. Well, that segues into my next question, which is, is studying dance right now a good idea? We have to find a way to be in our bodies when we're spending so much time sitting down in front of the computer. And while yes, the computer's on when I'm teaching a class, but you're not living in the computer, you will refer to the computer uh, to look at the combination or to talk about something, but then you're going to be in your, your space that you create for yourself and you're going to be in, having an embodied moment, which, which we need to have. And you're going to have some music and you're going you're gonna to work on focusing the mind and the body and the spirit in a very holistic way. Everybody needs to have something like that right now, especially because, and, and the thing is, is that yes, you can do it on your own, but also having a structured environment to do it is really helpful important it's it, you can't you can't not have a structured environment it's anch- it anchors them and i felt that with my students we all had the freak out when we had to move very quickly to online i had meltdowns my students had meltdowns but by the end everybody was like oh my god i really i didn't understand how how important this was how much i needed this yeah yeah. Um, okay. So historically, like New York or big cities have been hubs for dancers to move to because that's where the opportunities are. Uh, is right now a good time for dancers to move to big cities or should they wait or just do dances online or something? I mean, I think for years now it's been, I think, uh, because New York has become so expensive to have studios and for young choreographers or even established companies to function, to survive. I think there's been a lot of phenomenal dance that's coming out of um, other places. And I think that's going to continue now even more. So I think that's going to happen, continue to happen. I, I don't think New York City was once the dance capital of the world. I don't think so now. And uh, I think in Europe, where there's more government sponsorship um, of dance, I think there's just a lot more interesting things that are coming out of um, Europe. Um, not to say that they aren't here. You know, there's certainly some, there's wonderful opportunities and teachers and whatnot. But to survive as a freelance dancer in New York City, I, 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 I just I don't think it's that easy and i think it's going to be even tougher okay tangent question do you think k-pop is the future for dancers i hope not (laughs) (laughs) i hope not i have zero patience for that (laughs) okay um 
we've touched on unions, but are you in any right now and or historic, like what have you been involved with throughout? So I've been in, I, yeah, I was, so I was in SAG and AGMA and then I was an AFTRA for some really random small, I don't remember what job that was, maybe an industrial or something, but I don't even know if that's even around anymore. It's like. It's SAG-AFTRA is joined one union. So there. I'm, I'm on a withdrawal for SAG and, and AGMA, meaning I don't get benefits and I also don't pay any union dues, but I could probably re, reinstate that. Um, and, but I keep up with equity, which reminds me, reminds me I did not pay my May, my May dues. So I got to do that. Um, but I am, uh, and I will always do that because I'm credit union and I want to keep that. Um, nice. Um, what is your financial goal for this year? Uh, so because phantom closed, that was a, that was a, a nice salary. I had a royalty fee and I had a day rate when I went to work on the show and that's gone. So I need to find a way, I want to find a way so that here I go with the balance that I don't, I'm not making a ton of money, but that I don't go lower than what I made last year. So that means I have to teach more outside. I have to take on more classes. And um, so I have to figure that out. Um, so my financial goal would be to try to not go less than what I was making, which I don't know if that's possible. Right now I've taken on a lot more classes because of the, the situation. I'm not having as many students so I'm teaching more classes, but I'm to my body. I don't know. I'm tired. Like I could, like I have to think this is where the hobby thing comes in. I need to think about the transition thing because what do I imagine now, six years from now, if I, if I'm able to keep up this kind of load of teaching for a longer period of time and to be able to keep making that money? I don't know. I don't know. It's a big question mark. Right. Yeah. Okay. And maybe this actually ties in, but what is your personal goal for the year? It does tie in because I, I want to be able to figure out, I like teaching and I love nurturing and mentoring, um, you know, the college age student. So I would, I want to try and figure out another course in the performing arts that I could offer to teach that would not be such a a physical, demanding physical practice that would involve, and I, and, and I don't know what that is. I'm not really an academic, but I have a lot of experience that I feel like somehow might be interesting to kind of see what I could, what kind of a course that would be a performance studies course that might be interesting. Yeah. You don't have to answer this if you don't, but if money were no issue in your life, what would be your life's goal? I want a tiny container house. (laughs) Really? I want, yeah, I want a little container house somewhere with just, you know, somewhere nature. I love. I'm, I wait. You mean you mean you mean container house like the shipping containers? Yeah, like just one of those little one space. I don't need a lot of space. I want. I want. I want to be in nature. I want a washing machine, and I just want like an like a space to 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 have a nice kitchen cook. And it doesn't. I don't need multi level floors. I would never want that. Anyway, just like and so something that's like you know a little container house somewhere in nature. That's what I want. That that's awesome. That's fantastic. So if my landlord gives me the money, maybe I'll go. Right, <laughs> right. Exactly, yeah. exactly. <laughs> um, what financial advice would you give yourself right when you started your career, or would you give to a student who's just starting their career? Well, I think we we, we talked touched on this. Would be about you know maybe three days a week you don't have that coffee and you take that money and you put it aside. And I think earlier on, I probably would have asked my father more questions to get a little bit more educated into the language of, you know, what are these different accounts and how it all works. And I just felt like a little bit like blind about it. And the other thing would have been, I mean, 
I don't think I was ever really able to buy anything, but like any person thinking, ah, oh, should I have bought in New, in New York City earlier? You know, I mean, my both of my sisters, their husbands, they own their apartments in the city, but my mom, you know, we, we still rents, and I can't imagine at this point that I'm, I'll ever buy anything in the city um, or even out of the city. I just don't think it's going to happen. But the questions I have, it would have been possible many years ago when I was doing commercial work and making more money, and if I had bought that apartment, would I have been able to do the creative, the travel and the creative work, taking those jobs that did not pay a lot of money but were very rewarding creatively? Would I have still been able to do them if I had had a mortgage? Uh, final two questions. Uh, what, what separates those that have a successful career in the arts versus those that give up or never get started? I mean, if you had asked me this question many years ago, I probably would have said, I guess a su- successful career is if you can support yourself as a, an artist. But now I don't know if that's true. I mean, a career. I mean, yeah, I guess. I, have, I had to do, have I had to do other jobs to support myself? A little bit. My, my sister, who ended up not being a, a, a dancer, ended up working in fashion, and she was a stylist for a while, and I would do assist her and do returns. You know, I never had to do other jobs like waitress or work as a temp. Does that mean that's successful? I don't know. I mean, I was able to support myself doing my chosen field. While I didn't become a star, I was able to support myself. So I feel like for me, that felt like a successful career. I can't impose that on anybody else though. Yeah. Where can people find out more about you? Nowhere. I, <laughs> I mean, I have, I'm on Instagram. Um, Amos DeMud is my, my name. I mean, it's Nina Goldman, but Amos DeMud, A-M-O-S-D-A-M-U-D. Um, I mean, if you Google me, I'm there. Like, it's like I have photos and I have bios and faculty bios and stuff like that but no website haven't committed to that ethan although i know you're the person to go to (laughs) (laughs) not necessarily (laughs) okay um thank you nina for chatting with me. that's a lot of chatting that was our interview with nina goldman my takeaways were set aside something early and continue to add don't consider buying property if it isn't right for you keep a rent stabilized apartment if you can consider getting long-term health insurance Explore credit unions as a place to have a savings account. Saying yes to everything and working hard is a good way to continue to get paychecks. Take time to think about the long term. Not a lot of time necessarily, but just some time. That's it for today. Until next time, break a leg. Thank you for listening to Artistic Finance. Find more information on our website, artisticfinance.com please subscribe to our podcast and please leave a rating and review. Artistic Finance is produced in New York City by Nicole and Ethan Steimel. Producing consultant Anne Nygren-Doherty. Graphics and website by Josh Cutler. Music by Chong Liu.